On this episode of Conspiracy Unlimited Plus, an independent researcher and broadcaster unpacks the Nova Scotia massacre that claimed 22 lives. There could be lots of people in RCMP uniforms going around killing people. This was an operation way above, and that's the smoking gun, no pun intended. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome subscribers to this commercial-free premium episode. A horrible nightmare unfolded in a quiet rural community in Nova Scotia over the span of 13 hours on Saturday and Sunday, April the 18th and 19th. A seemingly crazed individual impersonating an RCMP officer complete with a phony uniform and an exact replica of an RCMP cruiser went on a shooting spree killing 22 people before finally being shot and killed after an altercation with RCMP officers at a gas station. There are so many totally bizarre aspects to this case, it's almost difficult to know where to begin. George Freund is a tremendous independent investigator and researcher and an award-winning blogger. He's also a frequent guest host on the Power Hour radio program. And whenever we're confronted with perplexing, multi-layered cases like this, I usually turn to George for help in making sense of it all if that's even possible. George Freund, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Oh, top of the world, Richard. Top of the world. We're fighting the demons and pinning them to the mat. The horrible massacre that occurred the weekend of April 18th and 19th. What's very unusual about this one? 22 people dead at least, plus the gunman. Gabriel Wortman. What's unusual is most mass shootings occur in moments, maybe over the course of an hour. This one stretched out over two days, started on Saturday, April the 18th, and stretched over into Sunday the 19th, 13 hours. I thought it might be good to begin with the timeline, and we start at 10 o'clock on the Saturday night, and this is where Wortman assaults and then ties up his, his longtime girlfriend. This is in Porta Peak, Nova Scotia, which is a very small town, about 100 people, let's say 40 kilometers west of Truro, Nova Scotia. And then you, you can jump in at any time if you think there's something you'd like to add, but I'm just going to quickly go through the timeline. So that's at 10 o'clock. Just after 10, police receive a 911 call about a shooting in, ru- in rural Porta Peak. About 25 minutes later, they arrive. The police, they find bodies on the roads and in homes, buildings on fire. A surviving gunshot victim says the gunman is driving a police cruiser. There are something like seven separate locations at this point in Porta Peak, 13 victims dead. So within the first 20 minutes, 25 minutes, we have 13 victims, fires all over the place. And we have a list of those initial victims. And I don't know if there's any of these victims that you want to comment, but we have Jamie and Greg Blair, Peter and Joy Bond, Corey Ellison, Lisa McCulley, Jolene Oliver, Aaron Tuck, and their daughter, 17-year-old Emily Tuck, Don Madsen and Frank Galenchen, and Elizabeth Joanne Thomas and John Zoll. 
Any of those uh, individuals you, you, you want to comment on? Well, my first big one is when you look at their bios, the media has the same mundane, cheap bio of virtually nothing. And I went through them, and just the light came on for Elizabeth Thomas and John Zale, but more Elizabeth Thomas. It's just something that there's something special about her that the media is not telling you. And it took me a hard, it was hard to find it. I had to go through American newspapers, and I got some keywords, and then I found it in the Winnipeg Free Press, what she really was. So the only thing mainstream media said was uh, she had a, you know, church-going dry-cleaning operation to help poor people get dry-cleaning. Well, there's got to be more to her life than that. Well, it turns out she was an executive for Blue Cross Blue Shield in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And that's hundreds of millions of dollars go through the healthcare system in the United States. That's a pretty important job. You think that would be part of her bio, to say the least. And then something that was just lightning rod. In Nova Scotia, and probably with other members of her church, because most of these people were Christian and they went to the same Presbyterian church, she was looking into human trafficking. Big, big, big red flag to say something's going on here. And they found something out. And this is an operation to take care of business. And when you look at, uh, you know, Gabriel with his police cars, and, they, you know, what would, be, what would you be doing if you're some kind of criminal nut bar assassin and you can't deny now that, you know, he's not at the top of the list of this? What would you be doing with that police car? Let, we'll, we'll come back to that in, in a moment. Women. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. Yes, picking up women, that's interesting. So we have, just to recap, we have uh, this shooting spree in the, uh, the evening of the 18th, just after 10 o'clock, 13 initial victims after he beats his common-law wife. She later escapes and runs into the woods. So uh, 13 dead, fires, police arrive, find uh, these bodies. At 10.35, a witness sees a vehicle believed to be the gunman's leaving port peak through a field. That was captured on video, I believe, as well. 11.12 p.m. of the 18th, Wartman arrives at an industrial area in DeBert, about 26 kilometers from the scene of the shooting, or shootings. 11.32, this is interesting now. The Nova Scotia RCMP announced on Twitter they are responding to a firearms complaint in Portapique and ask people to avoid the area and lock their doors. On Twitter? Not using the emergency uh, broadcasting system? Why on Twitter? Well, by and large, on Twitter, they're notifying their people that are friendly to them. And all the other people that are potential targets are not being notified because they're probably not signed up to Twitter for the RCMP. So they're left out in the dark. And the Americans were alerting their people through the American consulate that they were telling them what was going on. So you're purposely not telling people something for a reason. And this reason is so severe that, you know, everyone who died after this, that's the fault of the RCMP because you didn't put out this bulletin to warn people. People left their homes, they went out on the roads, they were in vulnerable positions, or they opened their doors. If they would have told these people, right, then you would have found them sooner. As soon as you said that you got this guy, he's in an RCMP uniform, he's driving a replica RCMP car. As soon as you see one pulling your driveway unannounced right away, you're calling 911 to say he's here and you're barricading yourself in the basement. And he would have been caught a whole lot sooner and the death toll would have been significantly less. Right. So, so I don't think that they're stupid and they made a mistake. It just smells bad. Well, yeah, imagine you've got a small rural community, 100 people. How many of them are even on Twitter? And even if they were, how many of them are following the RCMP? So very strange. And the provincial... Very, um, very few. 
Yes, and the provincial emergency broadcast system contacted the RCMP, said, do you want us to send something out? And I guess they they declined, said, no, we'll do it on Twitter. So that takes us to Sunday, April the 19th, the wee hours. And at this point, well, this is interesting because Gabriel Wertman, the gunman, arrives in Debert at 11, 12 p.m. on the 18th and... He doesn't leave until Sunday the 19th at 5.43 in the morning, just before daybreak. At 6.30 a.m., thereabouts, he's seen on video entering the Wentworth area, roughly 60 kilometers north of Porta Peak. He heads to a home on Hunter Road where he kills two men and a woman believed to be Alana Jenkins, Sean McLeod, and their neighbor, Tom Bagley. So very clearly, he knows where he's going. He's got a route planned out. Yes. The Globe and Mail said he had a death list. And, uh... That was good reporting from them to add some color to the dull narrative we're left with. That this this wasn't that doesn't sound like it's a reflex action from the so-called domestic with his girlfriend, who you know I've never heard her name or anything, so I call her the woman with no name, like the old movie, you know, the man with no name, the old western. And you know, well, who is she? You know, where is this person? How come no, she's never been interviewed or anything like this? Is she even made up? You know, we don't know. We just have to trust the people that lie to us all the time. But very, very unusual. The other thing is that he could be in this place for that long a period. When a major crime happens, every police from everywhere is going to flood into that area. I wouldn't even be the slightest bit surprised if he'd be bringing them in from New Brunswick to cover the roads and places. It's not that far away. And the fact that he could be in an area without you know, reams of police cars. You just you map out the area and you just send people to check all these different areas to look for them, whether the remote uh, parking lots or some part of a park, industrial areas, any place he could hide. That would be like item number one. It has to be part of standard operating procedures. And the fact that he could stay there, not be detected, tells me, you know, it's like somebody sneaking across the border and you bribe the guards in advance, they just turn a blind eye to something. It just doesn't make sense that he could be there that long and that that area wasn't checked over that period of time. They had more than enough time to call in Halifax Regional Police, some of the other municipal police forces, and uh, it, it, and they had air cover. That was another thing when he escaped from Porta Peak. They had air cover come in. So, you know, how can you not see him from the air? It just doesn't make any sense unless you've got one eye closed and the other one looking in your pockets. Right. So obviously he's he's staying at the victim's home in Debert where he killed Alana Jenkins, Sean McLeod, and their neighbor, Tom Bagley. So I, I don't know how he killed them, whether it was whether he shot them, but you would think someone would have reported shots fired there. And as you say, police would have descended. But no, he stayed there overnight, essentially. And uh, at, it's around this time that back in Porta Peak, his common-law spouse comes out of hiding. She was in the woods all this time since 10 o'clock the previous night. She calls 911 and then she tells police that Wartman assaulted her before the killing rampage. He had several firearms. He's wearing an authentic RCMP uniform and driving a replica RCMP vehicle. So at this point at uh, 8.02 a.m., Again, this is uh, 10 hours after the initial shooting. The RCMP say on Twitter that the Porta Peak situation involves an active shooter. 8.45 a.m., our RCMP released a photo of the gunman on Twitter and says he's considered armed and dangerous. Nearly 11 hours after the rampage uh, began. Let's talk a little bit about that replica car. Where would, you, where would you get something like that? Isn't that against the law? You can't impersonate a police officer. No, you can't. Well, you buy the old police cars at auction, but they're all stripped of everything. So you're just getting a car. And it's high mileage, so usually you get a later model car 
that's, you know, cheaper to buy and such. And generally they're a little tougher built and such like that because they've got heavy-duty stuff all around. A lot of cabs, drivers buy them for uh, the taxi fleet. Uh, you know, there's, you know, my neighbor's a demolition derby driver. <laughs> he, he, he buys them to smash up. But uh, they're readily available. The fact is that it was completely decked out as a 100% replica. That's, you know, that's illegal. You can't have any lights on it that reflect the police or emergency lights forward on any vehicle. It looks like a fairly new vehicle. They burn them out very quickly. They'll go through a car in about two years because they'll have like 200,000 kilometers on it. And they're in motion 24 hours a day. So, you know, that's what I mean. You get a very late model car for cheap. And, uh, but the thing is, they're very high mileage. And uh, that's the compromise you make. But, you know, they're a very heavy-duty vehicle. So it's not uncommon to see them all over the place. But uh, to be decked out like that as an exact replica, you know, as soon as you walk out on the street with that one, like somebody should be pulling you over and hauling you away. Anywhere else they do that. So the fact that he can openly have this, move around with it, and no questions are asked, it doesn't set any red flags off, is just amazing, especially if he's wearing an RCMP uniform, too. It just doesn't make sense. Where would he get that? Well, there's many ways you could get them. You know, you could get it through theft from a dry cleaner store. Uh, You know, you're not going to really buy them on uh, any kind of surplus market because the RCMP are paranoid about just even their name, that it's patented, you can't have anything, end of story. And... uh, so I can't see that he would get it from a legitimate source. Uh, what I was hearing is he was befriending a retired former RCMP who may have given him some clothes, along with some other things, and that's possible. Or if you know we go to the nth degree and uh, he's an active uh, patsy or agent from superior forces, they just give him the damn thing. <laughs> Here you go, you're on a mission from God, this is what we're using you for. You're going to take care of business, and then you're going to have the best that you can get uh, because it's given to you by the perpetrators of the crime. Uh, See, that's a big thing is somehow we are conditioned that when we have a crime, we have to always look down. Seldom we can look across at a lateral position, and we get our noses slapped very hard if we ever dare to look up closer (laughs) to the Politburo. Let me get back to the timeline if I could. So quarter to 10 on the Sunday... Wartman is spotted at Highway 4 and Highway 426. He kills a woman believed to be Lillian Hislop who is walking along the highway in one in the Wentworth Valley area. So it appears there are some people that are targeted and others are random. Or or was she random? I mean, it's possible he recognized her. It's a small community. However, let's assume that there's something else going on here other than just a, a, a madman on the rampage. Is he killing random people just to muddy the waters? Ah, words right out of my mouth. Yes. One of the most common facets in a mass casualty event is there's a primary target. And if you just killed the primary target, it would be very obvious very quickly why that person was killed, because you would understand the motive. And if you understand the motive, well, then you can work along the chain to see who the killer is very, very easily. But if I have an unconnected individual, like a patsy, and he kills my primary target and many, many other people, It's a random act, and it was just by some remote chance that my primary target died, and no one's going to ask too many questions. One of the ones that I found out in years of research was the Beltway Sniper. His primary target was Linda Franklin. Linda Franklin worked for the FBI. She developed the InfraGuard computer system that controlled all the intelligence agency computers with law enforcement and could hook them up. In a post-9-11 world, you don't want anybody knowing a lot of things. So you put the duck in a noose, and you finish her off, 
and it's just a random act by a madman. All right. So at um, after he uh, he kills Lillian Hislop, who he sees walking along the highway, he drives south to a home on Highway Four in the Glenholm area. They call nine one one. They say they know the shooter. They don't answer the door. Eventually, he leaves. Now, I don't know that we know their identity at this point, except that they knew him, and they luckily, they didn't answer the door. And then, uh, just before 10, video captures Wartman driving east in Debord. Uh, 10.04, RCMP tweet again that people should avoid Highway 4 in Glenholm as the gunman is in the area. My word, on on Twitter, they're doing this. Ridiculous. At Just after 10, Wortman arrives back in Debert. He pulls over a car and kills the driver. He continues along Highway 4 and does the same to a second driver. The victims are believed to be Kristen Beaton and Heather O'Brien. Uh, again, George, you jump in here at any point. We're getting near the end, but it's... Uh, Quarter after 10 to 10.20, Wartman is captured on video passing through Truro. He takes Highway 2 to Millbrook. At 20 after 10, police share publicly for the first time via Twitter that the gunman may be driving a vehicle that looks like an RCMP cruiser and wearing what appears to be an RCMP uniform. This is 12 hours, more than 12 hours, after the shooting and now and only on Twitter are they letting the public know the driver or the killer is driving an RCMP replica cruiser and he's wearing an RCMP uniform. That's absolutely ridiculous. Oh, indeed. You know, the only thing they could have probably done in their vernacular to improve it is drive to Halifax and put a message in a bottle and toss it into the sea. It's just unbelievable incompetence, and that's being mild. Right. 10.25 a.m., Again, Sunday morning, Wartman stops at Millbrook Fire Fire Station, gets out of the vehicle, removes his jacket. This is captured on video. He removes his his RCMP jacket and he puts on a reflective vest, then continues south on on Highway 2 through a a place called Hilden. 10.32 a.m., the gunman is seen on video taken at Brookfield Esso Station. 10.49 Police say RCMP Constable Heidi Stevenson and Constable Chad Morrison were working during this time in Enfield. The gunman pulls up alongside and shoots Morrison, but not fatally. He then heads south on Highway 2 and collides head-on with Constable Heidi Stevenson. He fatally shoots her, takes her weapon. A bystander, believed to be Joey Weber, arrives to help but is killed by the gunman. And then at this point, Wartman, the killer, takes Weber's silver SUV and begins driving that. 11.06 RCMP uh, tweet that the gunman is traveling south on Highway 102 from Brookfield, arrives at the home of a female acquaintance believed to be Gina Goulet. He kills her and leaves driving her Mazda 3. So he's now in his third car. 11.23, the gunman exits the highway, stops at Irving Big Stop Gas Station, about 100 kilometers south of Portapique. He So he's stealing cars. He's stopping at gas stations to fill up. He's driving south at 11.30 on Highway 102. He stops at the Irving Big Bop gas station, another gas station, about 100 kilometers south of Porta Peak to refuel. He keeps stopping at gas stations. I don't know what's going on here. RCMP say tactical officers also arrive to refuel. Uh, this is in uh, Enfield. There's an encounter with the gunman. Wartman was shot dead by police at 11.26 a.m. So, anything jump out at you? Changing cars, stopping at gas stations... He, he attacks uh, or he shoots Constable Morrison. He doesn't uh, fatally injure him. Uh, he then runs head on into Constable Heidi Stevenson and kills her. He shot her several times in the chest, takes her weapon. 
were they targets, do you, do you suspect? It's not beyond the realm of possibility, because in the previous RCMP murders in Moncton, uh, there is a similar connection to what I feel is the connection here. Uh, there was a woman investigating the missing women for her university thesis. She was killed in a car accident outside of Moncton. These officers were in the detachment that would investigate that accident and be privy to the information. And maybe they were not too happy about uh, the circumstances that arose. And then a Rambo killer comes along and kills three of them in uh, one of the bloodiest days in RCMP history. And I see a direct connect there. That there is this common denominator about, it's just, there's no coincidences in the intelligence game. So someone looking for missing women dies in a car accident. The officers around the car accident are all murdered. And it's a very rare thing the police are murdered. And then we have police here that may have been targeted as well. It's hard to find out now because once their names get public in this event, if you try to search them, it's very difficult to come up with, uh, you know, past information because the search engines have just overwhelmed 50 responses for every word almost on this issue without going into other ones. So I can't say that for certain, but it is a possibility that they were targeted. And one of the reasons is they were talking on the radio to each other that they were going to meet up. And somehow he knew that because he was able to intercept them. So they were expecting to meet each other, so they would expect an RCMP car to come forward. So he came to Morrison first, shot him, he retreated to get medical aid, and then Stevenson came along, and she rammed him. She was taking him out. She's, you know, she, she gave her life to stop this bugger. And uh, somehow he's able to get out of the wreck unscathed and finish her off and take her weapon. So that is it's just uncanny. As I said, on Power Hour, I used a football analogy, but we're Canadian, we can do hockey. It's like you give an old guy like me a hockey stick, you put me out on, a, uh, on the Maple Leafs ice against a professional team, I fire 23 shots on net and I get 22 goals. It's not going to happen. You know, this guy isn't a former Special Forces guy or anything like that. So to kill so viciously, escape and evasion, it's probably one of the hardest things that you would learn in the military. And generally, it's the special forces guys that can evade capture like this, because you're in enemy territory, other military units are after you, there's air support on top of you. And the fact that you can just blindly move around without any interception or anyone spotting you or anything like that, plus be doing all sorts of mayhem, is absolutely unbelievable. It really is. Right, right. So I'm just shocked at how easily he controlled you can't, well, I guess you could call it the battlefield, but he controlled it, and uh, nothing else did. And how did he do all this alone, if he did any of it at all, or is he just the idiot that went to the gas station to get shot, and the other ones retreated into the background? It's, it's, uh, it's a very, very complex situation. So among the, den, the dead, we have associates, business partners, family members. What do you make of that? That it apparently had a long list of grievances with some of them. Well, when you start looking at the information that isn't provided by mainstream media, then you get to the bottom of this. And the big part of it is that homes were burned to the ground. I mean, just scorched earth, nothing left but foundation blocks. And he burned his car as well. So all the alleged cars were left at his home. The one he was driving are burned. 
And you have to say, well, why would you do that? Well, the main reason would be, it could be hate, or it could be to destroy evidence. Because if you burn these homes to the ground, there isn't going to be any DNA evidence. There aren't going to be a latent fingerprint defined or anything. Everything's going to be destroyed. If a, if a fiber was left over from something, it's gone. And that would be your primary reason to burn this. So I got a tip from a chap who lives in the area. And they tell you one of the little pieces of information that mainstream media is leaving out. He was running basically like a night hotspot in his garage. He called this a Montana-style restaurant and lounge in his garage for his friends. So it's like, okay, it's a small town. There's probably no other place to go, really. But uh, I see the grand design from other stories I've covered was the relationship to, like, the Picton Pig Farm. They had Piggy's Palace. It was one of these bizarre remote locations. He's supposed to have tied up and beaten his girlfriend. Well, he's kind of leading to the dark side in his sexual practices. S&M and torture and things like that might be up his alley. Now, just for those listening, because we have a lot of American listeners not familiar with the the pig farm, this is where they uncovered the grisly remains of, uh, what, several dozen former uh, streetwalkers and uh, homeless people, women, who were taken off the streets in Vancouver, murdered and buried, dismembered and buried on this pig farm. And fed to the pigs. Ah, yes, I forgot that grisly detail. Yes. Uh, That left DNA anyway. So I look at this as they learned a lesson there, scorched earth. There's nothing to find. And when you look at it from this type of scenario, and this isn't the only places that this happened. When I interviewed the fireman who's suing Trudeau, Norman Traversy, he said the pig farm was a CIA operation. And there's a long history of that. And another author I interviewed, Stephen Kinzer, in his book, Poisoner in Chief, he talks about these houses that they had in New York City, San Francisco, and I believe one was in Florida as well. And they hired a guy named George Hunter White. He was an executive officer with the the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, to run these things. And it was all about sexual debauchery, torture, murder. You know, he traveled around the world as a hitman. He was proud of it. Most of this stuff was covered up. A mistake was made. They probably covered up the CIA correspondence and things. But his personal records were given to his alma mater. And he wrote a letter to Sidney Gottlieb. And uh, he wrote... Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, cheat, steal, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the all-highest? Pretty cool stuff, brother. And he started that letter with fun, fun, fun. So there are deviants running the hen house, and he's a glaring example. So just explain, if you could, this uh, hot spot, this night spot that was run out of a garage. Who was running that again? Mr. Wortman. Wortman was running, and so it, what else was going on in that? In that uh... Well, this informant says it was a drug operation, but that could be a bit of a red herring. Uh, you know, he could be smuggling drugs with the police car. No one's going to be too suspicious about that, so it's, it's a good way. But when I look at the victims, they're all church-going people, you know, and uh, they just seem to be the salt-of-the-earth people. Not that, you know, they might smoke a little dope or something like that, but to be involved in a narcotics uh, thing seems to be a bit of a stretch but that's what he said was going on it was a drug operation but i think it's more than that i think they were doing something akin to the pig farm and uh that they were raping or murdering women and uh you know i don't hold back on things like that because the level of sophistication of what happened and how he evaded capture and the equipment that he had some of the targets like the one the globe and mail exposed who he didn't get just said i only talked to him about police cars 
that Mr. Tuck and his daughter Emily talked about the cars with him too because they fixed old cars. So it seems for some strange reason, people who know about his cars are on the hit list at the top of the list. And they all look like, you know, you'd love to have them for neighbors. They look at the most decent, kind, generous people. So I can't see he had grievances about them. What the grievance could be is when my police car started to get developed to the point that they had a radio inside or a gun rack that had a gun in it, that you knew too much. And you can't be allowed to spoil the narrative that's going to come along. Now, who so is... how did he know Morrison and Stevenson were going to meet? Because he was listening on the radio and he knew where they were going to be and he showed up in their place. So to do, and it, he didn't get it from Twitter, that's for sure. Okay, so, so Mortman is a denturist, ostensibly. He, 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 he fixes and, and makes dentures. Who is he to the RCMP? Ah, uh, you see, he had a previous job. He was a mortician. He knows how to get rid of the bodies. Uh, we have an old saying in the uh, organized crime business. One of their common fronts is funeral homes. They call it the two-for-one special. When you've got to get rid of somebody, there's a closed casket funeral. Nobody's ever going to know you put an extra body in there. Sometimes when the pallbearers are taking them out, they're going, Man, what's this thing full of rocks? It's just so heavy. Because it's the two or maybe even three-for-one special. Or you could arrange for bodies to be cremated and disposed of in that manner as well. No one's going to know. But that was this sideline specialty that's escaping the narrative, too, for some strange reason. But the level of sophistication of this just screams. And the most important thing to scream about this is at approximately 10.30 a.m., two RCMP show up at the Onslow Fire Hall. And as you described in your narrative, he's at another fire hall much farther away. These guys come from two different directions. There's one in the front, one in the back. This fire hall is sheltering people from the area. It is also the RCMP's command post, which is quite frequent in these emergencies that they use fire halls because they're all over the place. Guy goes inside, nobody recognizes him. He leaves, and in the company of the other person who's wearing full RCMP uniform as well, they open fire on the fire hall. So in the picture I got from the Halifax Chronicle, I counted 15 bullet holes, but it may have been a close-up that you don't see the whole list. But they're perpendicular. Hang on, we should point out that at this point, Wartman is not in that area. He's not in Lower Onslow. No, a, oh, no, he's about 60 miles away, right. heading towards Halifax. Right, but this, as you say, this fire hall in Lower Onslow is being used to gather the evacuees from Portapique who have gathered there to avoid the rampage. I guess they, they were lucky enough to have, uh, to have uh, followed the RCMP on Twitter, so they got the message. Indeed. Now, the level of these bullet holes shows that they're probably using a fully automatic weapon because it's a perpendicular line. When you fire the automatic weapon, the first couple of rounds are sort of in the right direction on target, and then the muzzle rises up from the recoil. So you just see like a line. So in the military, they used to call it spray and pray. And you just see this line going up the wall. The bullets went through the garage door, hit the bumper on the fire truck, damaged the engine block, and those are big trucks. So you're probably not shooting a pistol if you're damaging the engine block on a fire truck. It's probably something akin to the RCMP C8 carbine, which is like the military M16 with a shortened barrel and fire selector so that you can shoot full auto. And after the Moncton killings, they put them in all the RCMP cars. What do these two RCMP officers that fired at the uh, fire hall, open fire on the fire hall in Onslow, have to do with Gabriel Wartman? Well, that's my point. 
Gabriel Wartman could be a patsy. There could be lots of people in RCMP uniforms going around killing people. This was an operation way above, and that's the smoking gun, no pun intended. This is outside. When I went to school, we took math. One isn't two, two isn't one. So it's, you know, at best, it could be Wartman and an accomplice, a handler, and he's the patsy, or you have so many other wild cards on the thing. What they're showing is they're establishing dominance on the RCMP, because that's their command center. You're going in there and saying, code of silence, mafia style. You open your mouth, you talk, we're going to gun you down, and there's nothing you can do about it, because I'm going to shoot up the fire hall, threaten your lives, and I'm just going to walk away, and nothing's ever going to happen to me. I'll never be identified, but this is going to fall off the table. Nothing's ever going to be found. Nothing's ever going to happen about this, because those are the real controllers. You can tell who's in charge in dominance by how others move around them. This happened in Beslan at the school massacre. Police had the whole thing sealed off. Some group of men walked through the police lines. Now, if Toronto police got something sealed off in like a high-end shooting thing, they, you know, nobody goes through. Who walked through the line? Well, you've got to have more authority than the police. So not just that you walk through the line, you start shooting them up to put them in their place, to remind them who's in charge. So just to, to recap here, Gabriel Wortman, prior to being a denturist, was a mortician. And th- he may have been involved with the RCMP in disappearing bodies. We're talking about some very bad apples in the RCMP that may have been involved in some criminal activity, murder. He was, they were using Wortman as a mortician to disappear these bodies. And, and then the primary target was this Christian woman who was investigating human trafficking in, the, in Nova Scotia. Again, these same bad apples in the RCMP may have been involved in that. So they were using Wortman maybe as the patsy or maybe as the gunman to get rid of her, but he kills all these other people to make it look like a random shooting. Is that the idea? Oh, that's possible. I go higher than the RCMP because the other places that did this were CIA operations. So I don't doubt that for a minute. Same when we did MK Ultra at McGill, it was a CIA operation. So just because they dress up as RCMP doesn't mean they're RCMP. That's part of their cover is to throw dirt on them to take the, the scent away. Uh, you know, I would go more for one of these other alphabet soup uh, organizations just mimicking to be RCMP. And they could get all the bells and whistles equipment. They would have access to radios that they could listen in on the same frequencies because they're the deep state, too. And uh, so it could be much deeper than that. And I believe they're the ones that are involved ultimately at the human trafficking level that it goes right to the top. You don't have to steal Mr. Wiener's laptop to realize how far to the top this goes. And when you step in that mud, it's quicksand, and they're going to swallow you up. And generally, for looking after their own security, a lot of people that may take this on are rather unsophisticated in how to protect themselves, what danger signs to look for, and things of that nature. So they can be very, very vulnerable to attack. And it appears this was a long list of attack, attack, attack. And the primary places that are burned to the ground, I would say, would probably have the most knowledge about this. And some of the other victims who weren't totally, totally decimated and destroyed were people who were just added to the broth to muddy the waters so that you have a cover story of random killings. But to take the time as a killer to set a place on fire 
brings a lot of attention to your crime. If they were just shot, they might lie there for days before anybody figures it out, and you could be on a slow boat to China. So to burn the place down really doesn't do you well, as your typical sort of killer. There had to be a very profound reason for this. And to destroy your own home as well, uh, you know, says there was probably a lot of dirty dealings going on in there too, and you're destroying the evidence in your place too, so that it could never be recovered, never be found, and probably even not even suspected that it could be that bad, because no one's even going to find the slightest bit of a clue a little piece of clothing that came off somebody who went missing, a piece of identification perhaps, or, or something that was dropped inadvertently that would lead you to suspect the reality of the crime scenes you're dealing with. Totally, totally scorched earth destroyed. Very, very unusual too. Usually the killers are, you got your thing, you're a burner or you're a shooter or some other thing, a strangler, poisoner. But usually you have your vernacular, and you don't take out multiple disciplines to do things of a different nature. So that, that kind of takes us away from the typical narrative that they're trying to say is, you know, he's just some kind of, of random shooter. So I find that they'll be the least credible solution to this. But it is politically sustainable, because we're at a point of time of crisis in the world Basically, the whole human race has been captured, and we're being held prisoner under fear of a disease that may or may not exist. But various power structures are involved. This is just the beginning stages. You know, many, many people are talking about how much worse this is going to be. And one of the prime facets you would have in capturing and holding prisoner large segments of a population would just be to disarm them. And this has already started where Mr. Trudeau wants to order and counsel, ban and turn instantly illegal 11 variations of various firearms that have absolutely nothing to do with this and have absolutely nothing to do with criminal behavior. It's just tens of thousands of Canadians, I think they've got plan to do this Friday, are going to be criminals because they usually don't give you an opportunity to surrender these weapons. They just say it's illegal and, uh, you know, it puts everyone in a gray area very, very quickly that has one of these things. And most of them are registered, and we probably already know what most of them are. But Wartman had all illegal guns anyway, so it doesn't really accomplish anything on trying to make the world safer. It only makes it safer for the people who are right. taking it over. So do you and, suspect that this this shooting is, gonna, is going to disappear from the news cycle the way that the Vegas shooting did? Over time, the big thing this is going to be, it'll be brought out for political agendas, the main one being gun control to disarm Canadian citizens. I look at this as the way things are moving. It's the end of the biblical age. We're moving from flesh and blood, and we struggle against things that are not flesh and blood, to go into the new reality, which is going to be circuits and chips, artificial reality, artificial intelligence. The silicon is going to take over the world and run it, and everything that God made is going to be destroyed. A lot of our leaders have acquiesced and guaranteed themselves positions for a while as a quiller Vichy government under enemy occupation from whatever it is that can pull these stunts off. And the long-term game is they're going to call the herd. So to kill a few faster means nothing to them. It's just we're so unsophisticated to even begin to grasp the level of mockery that is being imposed on us. So there are things going on behind the curtain. It is the Wizard of Oz. It's deep, diabolical. There, there is a, a force that is loose that intends to really hurt the human race and all life on this planet. 5G will run the operation. We all have to have an IP number like a computer. 
and we're going to have universal facial recognition to watch you. That's why we have to get trained for social distancing so they can watch us by satellite and know exactly that's us. Because if we're in a pack of 10 or 12 people, it's hard to identify which one. And these chips are so powerful that, you know, once they're implanted, if I decide to push the off button, in Star Trek they call it the instrument of obedience. So you'll get hot and cooperate, or we push it again, and the man who touches the sky just dies. George, things are never as they appear to be. Thank you so much for this. How do we follow your uh, your blog, your uh, podcast, and your Power Hour broadcasts? Well, Power Hour Nation, that's their website, www.powerhournation.com. And uh, you go to the links for listening and pretty much every podcaster, satellite, affiliate stations. Uh, I just usually download the podcast schedule and keep a copy for myself. My website's conspiracy-cafe.com. And, uh, you know, for whatever other little things that come along and go bump in the night, we do our best to post them and get them out there because the only way to change the dialogue is for us to get active. Marshall McLuhan made it very, very clear. World War III is a guerrilla information war with no distinction between civilian and military forces. General, I salute you because you're the general on your side. The other thing he said is, Satan is prince of air waves. That's what it meant in the Bible when it said prince of the air. That's his battlefield. He controls the space. When we get into that space, we're an enemy to occupied territory. We do our hit-and-run tactics, thought grenades, information bombs, and wake people's minds up so that they see a bigger picture. And part of the seeing of the bigger picture is they can take action to inform us or other broadcasters so that we can continue a bigger, better battle to defend ourselves here on planet Earth. George, thank you so much as always. God bless. You too, my friend. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 